0: Behind every success story, there is a long line of triumphs and defeats that remain hidden from others. These stories get condensed into journeys that minimize the struggle and wrap up with a happy ending. But we know that's not how life works. That's where From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay comes in. On today's show, you'll hear honest conversations about the challenges that Mark's guest faced and how they overcame adversity. Now, here is your host, Mark Azoulay.
1: Welcome back to another episode of From the Ashes. I'm here with Dr. Ravi Shankar, and it's really, your story is really interesting. So he's the author of a book called Correctional, which looks at the criminal justice system. And it starts with this incredible story of... I'm going to say mistaken identity, but probably more systemic racism. So can you kick us off and tell us what your experience was there? Welcome to the show. Absolutely,
2: Mark. It's great to be here. And uh, I'm I'm so happy to share this narrative of correctional, which I think fits perfectly into this paradigm of rising from the ashes. Uh, This uh, first encounter, actually, I think it was probably a little bit of both. Uh, uh, This happened in uh, New York City. A uh, place that I lived uh, for many years, I, I write about living through 9-11, and this was years later when I was a homeowner in Connecticut, a tenured professor at a university, and I was just at a literary event, and on my way home, uh, Midtown Manhattan, uh, right near the Macy's Herald Square, and I take a totally legal left turn, and all of a sudden I'm pulled over, uh, I'm given a breathalyzer, which I pass, and then the officer uh Pins me up against uh, the grates of the stores there, twists my arms behind my back, put me in handcuffs and into a paddy wagon. Uh, and he uh, turns to his uh, partner and says, it's always a good day when you can bag a sand N-word, uh, which Ooh. is still so <clears throat> blazed into my mind. Now it would come to turn out that this was in fact an erroneous warrant. Uh, it was for a five, six white guy. Uh, uh, I'm six, two, and I'm South Asian, uh, 140 pounds. I'm 200 pounds when I'm on a diet, you know, uh, and uh, I was totally shocked. I, I was brought to Central Booking, which is this large uh, carceral facility right under the streets of Wall Street. And so some of the listeners might not know when you're walking in downtown Manhattan near the World Trade Center and all of that, where it existed, underneath your feet is this detention center. And I was kept for 72 hours. I wasn't given a phone call. Uh, and uh <clears throat> Uh, I actually found out from uh, the conversations initially, I was totally petrified and I ended up talking to some of the men. It was, I was just in a cell with a number of other men, mainly uh, Latino and African-American men of color. And they said, "Uh, you know, you got caught in a stop and frisk. And that at the end of the month, there's a competition between precincts to see who can get the most callers. And a lot of this, I was just like, Oh, what really? It turned out to become substantiated when some years later, Uh, Stop and Frisk was actually found to be uh, unconstitutional by uh, U.S. District Court Judge Shira Shindlin. And a lot of what I was told turned out uh, whistleblower actually uh, accounted for as fact. Uh, And so I think there was something like 800,000 innocent New Yorkers uh, stopped uh, over the period Mm -hmm. of 10 years uh, under the rhetoric of public safety. But I have in my book asked the question, what happens when you're kind of a priori criminalized for nothing that you did? Uh, how does it change your relationship to your community, to yourself, to, to those around you? And certainly, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but it did change change my perspective in a big way.
1: Yeah, so I want to bring you back to that moment for a moment. What was it like? I mean, what were you feeling when you were there? What were you thinking? When you're getting, you know, handcuffed and, and you're hearing that word, what was running through your mind?
2: Well, you know, I... Uh, th- When you're a a person of color, and of course, I'm South Asian American, and so in a lot of ways, I've benefited from a lot of privilege. Um, Indian Americans are among the highest per capita earners in the country. And yet, like any person of color, you kind of know when you're stopped by the cops. I mean, I was really super polite and uh, really deferential. And then when this, all of a sudden, the events took a turn uh, to this side, I was, uh, yeah, definitely freaked out. Uh, I didn't know. And I guess I I can still see, I mean, when I think back to that episode, the officer's face, Officer Murphy, I can still see, uh, etched in my mind, and I just didn't understand at the time, and I still have trouble. I know there's a lot of institutional pressures and the like, but for someone to have uh, such hatred for someone that they'd never met, probably on the basis simply that they were different than themselves, and, you know, a lot of times I think that uh, the other side of hate is hatred is fear, and that's maybe where it comes from, but... Uh, yeah, at the time, it was surreal. It felt like, what is this really happening to me? I'm, I haven't lived in New York in over a decade. Uh, what, what is going on? I, you know, and uh, actually, when I was before I was sent in, the officer had that warrant and I, I said, you know, that's not me. And his response was tough shit, you can tell it to the judge. Uh, and so all along the way, I found that uh, no one really cared. And that actually my, what was so shocking to me was a really common occurrence to for many New Yorkers at that time.
1: Yeah, that's, that is so wild. And it's, I mean, I'm in a different place. I'm in Boulder, Colorado, right? Which is unbelievably homogeneous, right? It's probably one of the whitest places in the world. Uh, one of my first jobs was working as a DUI therapist, right? Mm-hmm. Helping people that were stuck in that system. And I can say, I mean, kind of with a laugh, but not really, is that that place was the most diverse place in Boulder, Colorado, right? It was crazy how many people of color or minorities were getting charged, right? Where Boulder is predominantly white, that treatment center was where the diversity was happening. It was shocking to really see that.
2: And uh, when you were working with these men, uh, did they kind of share their stories with you? And uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's the whole thing to talk about. I definitely got a lot of stories from them. And I got the sense, kind of what you were saying, that they were guilty until proven innocent. Yeah. And many of the pullovers were things that they weren't being told their rights. In, in Colorado, there's this thing that if you refuse a breathalyzer, you are charged with the maximum charge. Although the officer gives you the opportunity to refuse a breathalyzer. So it says, yeah. hey, do you want to take this test or not? And if you say no, you're slammed. So a lot of the guys, and you're guilty automatically, right? Yeah. So a lot of the guys were stuck from that. Um, there's a couple crazy stories of guys that were, you know, one guy who was hanging out in his car, um, at a job site drinking because there was some theft on the job site and he was just sitting there and a cop went to the job site and arrested him for that, even though he was not driving at all.
2: Just sitting there. Yeah.
1: He was just sitting there. I mean, I had one guy who was working on his vehicle, who his engine was literally outside of the vehicle, but he had the, the keys were in the ignition and he got pulled over right in his front yard. Yeah. So it was crazy how much loopholes were being used to incarcerate these individuals. It was it was wild.
2: Yeah, and you know when you hear one or two stories it seems like Uh, Or maybe it just happens here and there. But no, in fact, this is happening everywhere. And I like to, you know, part of what my book does, it does, it zooms out a little bit and looks at the uh, situation of mass incarceration and how it became so racialized. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist, um, but I I don't think it's any coincidence that the two great moments of prison growth in U.S. history, one came after the Civil War and the post-Reconstructionist South you had this kind of plantation to prison pipeline. And then the other one came at the end of the 1970s, the end of the civil rights movement. And that's when I, you know, Ronald Reagan had the war on drugs. And actually, President Bill Clinton made it really far worse with his omnibus crime bill. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, that that's the crazy thing to me when I think about it is that this is a really modern phenomenon that in in 1980, there were about 250,000 people that were incarcerated and last year there was about 2.1 million and so even accounting for population growth this is almost a 1000% increase and when you overlay that with the statistic of who is being incarcerated uh you know you're uh, i think eight times more likely in Connecticut uh, as a person of color to be arrested to have a longer con- conviction and sentence and so all of those things are kind of embedded. And that's what I think when we talk about structural racism, it's kind of embedded in the actual workings of the system from policing to the judicial to probation and parole every step of the way.
1: Yeah, that is so, it's just so crazy to hear those numbers and it's crazy that you witnessed that firsthand to see how broken the system was. I mean, I can share a little bit more from my DUI thing is, you know, one of the reasons I actually walked away from that job was because a probation department bought the treatment center and we were being told to violate confidentiality so that they could drug test people, right? Because during probation, right? If you drink or if you use drugs, they have the right to randomly test you, but they were having therapists rat out the people, right? Which is not helpful for treatment, right? I'm a drug and alcohol counselor and relapse is part of recovery. And the guy would tell me, Hey, you know, I I slipped up, I drank, it was just one beer, but I pulled it back. And, you know, we can have a therapeutic moment around processing that, But then I was being pressured to tell the PO, oh yeah, he drank last week, get him in for a test, which is incredibly unethical.
2: Right, that's counter to the kind of uh, patient-client confidentiality.
1: Right, right. And because it was owned by the same company, there was a lot of pressure to violate that patient-client confidentiality. And it was just crazy to see a system that I think you're talking about, I'm sure you have a lot more thoughts on, but that is invested, in many ways, very monetarily invested in people's failure right? It's invested yeah. in keeping you in the system. It's not really invested in rehabilitation, even though that might be what it says on the tin.
2: That That is such a great point. Yeah, there's a lot of rhetoric around rehabilitation, but certainly in my experience, uh, and that's we can get to the core of the story I tell in Correctional, because I would later have uh, another kind of encounter with the criminal justice system uh, for a little bit longer. And uh, I found very little hope for rehabilitation there. Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that the, the uh, that our country is one of the highest has one of the highest recidivism rates of any nation in the developed world, and yet we put so much more money into the system. I mean, we have about five percent of the world's population, twenty five percent of the world's incarcerated population, mm-hmm. and but it's not working because these people are getting back in time and time again. And that's where it feels like, you know, this is not a Democratic issue or a Republican issue. It's really a human issue, because as a taxpayer, what if my uh, taxes were going towards education and community resources and mental health programs instead of the way it's been in many states over the last 20 years or so? There's been about three times as much money spent on incarceration than education and you know, a lot of the men that I met um, were really smart, could benefit society with a little support. And instead of be, having any support, I found that they were getting re-traumatized, dysregulated, and going back less equipped to re-enter society. And the society they were re-entering it was not a very forgiving one. Even if you paid your debt to society, if you have a criminal record, you really can't move forward with your life. Uh, and so, yeah, the people, once you're in the system, it's really hard to get out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, once you're on paper, right, it's so difficult and you're completely right. I saw it from the people that I worked with is especially if there's any kind of felony charge, you're truly a second class citizen, yeah. right? Because every job is going to request a background check. Sometimes, um, you know, renting or going for a loan, anything is going to re- require that. And, you know, the people are always going to pick the person without a record over someone who does. Mm-hmm. So it creates a, a real bifurcation in the population. Um, can you share a little bit about your second Incident?
2: Or yeah. what so, you were in the system. Yeah. Uh, so this um, uh, happened back in 2008 or so, and uh, uh, what I didn't realize is that kind of imperceptibly, something had unhinged. I think I grew a little bit more paranoid. Uh, You know, I uh, was probably taking more risks, uh, you know, we were DUI counselor, I think at that time, I was probably drinking a little too much. Mm -hmm. And I ended up uh, over and in the book, I detail in this chapter called the three poisons, where I use this in Buddhism, uh, the three poisons are greed, greed, Uh, uh, delusion uh, and anger. And they're represented in Buddhist iconography as a rooster, a pig and a snake. And you will find them in a circle, each one trying to devour the tail of the one in front of it. And uh, in this chapter, I use these sections to kind of detail how in my own life, um, I had, through um, bad decision-making and terrible luck, ended up uh, eventually uh, violating my probation by driving on a suspended license. I'd gotten a DUI and uh, as a result, had to do 90 days uh, at Hartford Correctional Center, which is where the, the book is called Correctional. And so a lot of it takes place. Uh, it just so happens my story is a little unique in that I was being promoted uh, to full professor um, while this was happening. And uh, you know I had a highly paid attorney. A lot of people have public defenders. And they wouldn't have had uh, the, the deal that I had. But it, in retrospect, I kind of wish I hadn't agreed to this. But my attorney uh, made it so that this 90 days was split up over about a year and a half. Uh, so I could get out. I describe in the book how one summer I spent 45 days at Hartford Correctional. And then I got on a plane, uh, flew out to Hong Kong to teach my graduate students and you <laughs> know to the ambassador at the top of the Ritz-Carlton. Mm-hmm. And I got on a plane flew back and had to do another two weeks. And so that year of my life was so uh, bizarre. But the reason I wish I say I wish I'd done all in one fell swoop is every single time you go in, it is uh, humiliating, uh, re-traumatizing, you're jeered at, you're turned into a carceral object, you have to, you know, spread your ass cheeks and bend over and go uh, live with uh, another group of men you've never met before uh, with little access to the outside world. And so I would come to dread those times, uh, you know, and this is the story uh, I, you know, I, I've certainly made my mistakes, but the 90 days for driving on a suspended license is the same amount of time that that Stanford swimmer who raped an unconscious Chanel Miller uh, had to do, mm-hmm. and so we have a, a couple of different uh, criminal justice systems that exist in this country. I think, and certainly, uh, if you and I had, as I said, a really highly paid attorney. I mean, without one, who knows what would have happened to me?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that is that is crazy. I'm I'm wondering when you were in the correctional facility, how was the structural racism playing out there? I'd imagine oh, that was a mixed, diverse population plus the guards right what did you see
2: yeah well I mean I guess diverse in that uh they were primarily men of color I mean I would say I was it was nothing like I expected I wasn't in a jail cell I was in a dorm Mm -hmm. with 60 other men uh there's dorm a and dorm b 60 men on the other side so 120 men and I would say probably 90 percent 95 percent were men of color Uh, so but uh so it wasn't really a diverse I mean it was a pretty yeah, uh, There were certainly uh, Jamaicans and uh, Mexican-Americans and all variety of men of color. Uh, and, you know, funnily enough, there wasn't a lot of dif- differentiation between them and the correctional officers. Uh, they seem to come from the same socioeconomic background and even know each other a little bit. Um, but I certainly found talking to these men that from a young age... Uh, they had had trouble uh, with the law for whatever reason. And, you know, one of the men I, I talked to, it's arrested for smoking a joint, had had cash bond put on him. That wasn't that much, but he couldn't meet it. And his court case kept getting continued time and time again. So he'd been there for six months, at which time he'd flunked out of night school he'd missed the birth of his first son. Uh, and he just said on the other side of this, I don't know what I'm going to do. I have a you know, criminal record now and I've been in jail. And so these stories, and I heard a lot of them that I recount, uh, really kind of opened my mind and my heart in a huge way.
1: Yeah, we're going to move into commercial break now. But when we get back, I want to hear some more of these stories. In your uh, press release, you really detail some interesting characters that I think show up in the book of just meeting people with different beliefs and different walks of life. So we'll spend some time focusing on that. For those listening at home, uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, Stay tuned and we'll catch you on the other side of the break.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's Mark, M-A-R-C, dash Azoulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y, dot teachable.com.
1: Our thoughts and feelings not only affect our own lives, but the lives of everyone around us. Find new meanings of love, authentic expressions, and better connections with the people in your life. Tune in to Love Light with Dr. Jean Marie Farish. This program will feature guests and discuss ideas that will bring a better life to you. When you find this perspective on love, it will change everything. Listen live every Friday at 12 noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.
0: It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azolay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes.
1: So Ravi and I were talking over the break, and one thing that's really fascinating that I highly respect about him is that he's also a poet. Um, during my education, I really got to appreciate poetry, um, learning from the Beat Poets at Ropa University, and just kind of doing a little bit of my own casual poetry when I do my own um, retreats. And I was wondering if you would be open to sharing a poem that you wrote during this time in the Correctional Facility to give people a sense of what was going through your mind at that time, and how are you making sense of the experience?
2: Absolutely, yeah. I actually have, um, because you have so much time, and that's what I found is that uh there weren't really any resources to improve yourself or to take classes. Uh, you couldn't even go outside except for, uh, you know, an hour each day. And so you're stuck in this space and you have a lot of time, you know, to tell stories, to play cards, to read, to think, and to 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 meditate. And uh, this, uh, so this is a poem that I wrote while I was in, in there. And uh, uh, let me see if I can... Uh... find it here. I had it a second ago. Um, yes. The, so I, I actually, uh, you know, spent time meditating and ruminating on my life and um, thinking about how in the middle of this really successful life, I could have, and my marriage was breaking up at this time. I kind of was ec- ostracized from my community. I was losing my job. And how could this have happened? It was almost felt like an act of self-sabotage. And, uh, but what I found through meditating is that I was able to kind of um, unhook myself from this obsessive self-blaming that was running through my head. And so this is a, a small poem I, I, I wrote. Uh, it's called uh, One Stone to Samadhi. And Samadhi in Buddhism is kind of the the, the state of uh, almost nirvana, where you've kind of gone beyond uh, uh, be, the mortal concerns and you're tapped into your inner Buddha nature in some way. And uh, um, it's called One Stone to Samadhi. Back in the room, it's as if we never left, a cone of frangipani gradually charring and clared a loon overlaid with whale song piping through tweeters in the background, plastic folding chairs filled with disparate frames in similar postures, back straight, palms open upon thighs, eyes closed, muscles relaxed, the flicker of thought, in principle, sacrificed to the rising and falling of breath. Still, a fleck of peripheral self can't help but remain, temporarily unhooked from memory's flux and grapple, yet attended in some form nonetheless, a watchfulness impartial to inclination, though to speak of it is like pointing a finger at the moon. Suffice it to say that eyes closed, the crest on passing time's ongoing wave perpetually furnishes the mind with vista, and back in the room, it's as if we never arrived.
1: That's really beautiful. Thank you for so much for sharing that. Oh,
2: absolutely Mark. Yeah. You know, I, I, I detail in the book. I mean, w- one of the things I decided—you uh, want uh, any excuse to leave the constraints of this space—and so I, I tried to volunteer. I'm a college professor, I said, I will teach classes. All of those were ignored. But I decided one thing you could do is put in a religious preference form. And so, because I these ninety days was split up over about a year and a half, each time I decided I would go in, I would be a, one of the world's uh, different religions. So I was—I uh, said I was uh, Jewish one time, Catholic one time, Islam one time and that meant I would go to these different study sessions or prayer sessions with these men and actually I ended up learning a lot about some of these world's religions Uh, and and, you know the the poem that I wrote took place in one of these sessions where all these men were just sitting and meditating Uh, and it was this kind of beautiful powerful moment that no matter what they take from you inside you still have the capacity to be free Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's that's the message, right? That's the message from Buddhism. And there's that very common metaphor that gets used a lot of the um, the lotus flower, right? The idea that it grows out of the muck, it grows out of the mud, the swamp, you know, toxic water, you get this beautiful flower. And that's what I was searching to as, as you were talking is that even in this horrible correctional facility, there's that chance for spiritual awakening. And there's that chance for connection with the present moment.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I use this other um, concept in the book as well, uh, wabi-sabi, which comes from uh, Japanese uh, ceramics, where um, sometimes if you are making a pot, a symmetrical pot, and it ends up cracking in the kiln or becoming imperfect, rather than throw it out, what they do is through the art of kintsugi, they actually uh, inlay the imperfection with gold and call more attention to it. And then it becomes more valuable and rarer. And I love that idea that somehow the scar can be a source of beauty uh you know that the the difficulty that you go through can actually help make you a better person and can be transformative and i know for me because that was the silver lining for me is um uh, meeting these men that i never would have encountered in my everyday life you know i'm here i am and i don't like the term the ivory tower but you know certainly my life prior to hartford correctional is uh, i would not have encountered many of these men and yet they briefly kind of uh, took me in and shared their stories. And, um, they made me promise that I would do something with them, which is part of why I knew I had to write this book. Uh, they said, you know, you have a voice out there. We don't have a voice. No one cares about us. Uh, we want you to kind of do something with this. And I said, you know, I, I will. Uh, and that's, that's part of why I wrote, wrote the book.
1: Yeah. That's such an inspiring story, right. And it speaks to different levels of privilege and the fact that you are able to, you're skilled, you, you have that level of, um, Acclaim the the education to go out there and share these people's stories and to, you know, bring attention to this system. Are there any in particular you like to share on this podcast, anyone who you met that really stood out?
2: Yeah, I mean I a lot especially that first stint when I did 45 days in uh Dorm B. Uh and you know you spend most of your time uh yeah the way uh the space is situated you're on bunk beds and the space that three bunk beds makes together is your cube. And so you spend a lot of time with your cube mates and uh I describe uh some of them that I got to know pretty well and, and one gentleman in particular uh his name is Kendrick but he's called Chaos. Everyone in there had nicknames. You know, I, I was called everything from professor to bin laden you know not always the best nickname but uh uh this this guy chaos uh was someone who uh It was a self-avowed kind of vicious crackhead. And right off the bat, he told me, you know, if you mess with me, I'll fuck you up, all this kind of stuff. And then the more I talked to him, the more I realized he was really a very tender person who had been really deeply wounded that he had both of his parents had been incarcerated. And so this is the ripple effect, the generational effect uh, that incarceration has. So he was you know, raised by his uncle who didn't want him and kicked him out. One winter, he lived in the back of a uh, a Buick filled with beer cans. And he just was on the streets hustling. Uh, And I came to find out that actually he was illiterate. And uh, so, you know, uh, spending time with him, uh, he expressed a little interest in wanting to learn to read and write. And so uh, we spent time and actually I taught him the alphabet and he ended up uh, knitting a handkerchief with his daughter's name, Aaliyah. On it, and I have to say, you know i've taught all around the world Ivy League institutions, and this was probably one of my proudest pedagogical moments and uh, yeah, hopefully that could help open, but what you know what he told me uh, he had survived it wasn't surprising to me that, and he almost had a fait accompli, he just felt like i 'm going to end up back in here, no matter what I do. it doesn't really matter in fact, you know this is this is my home i haven't had a home, and this is as close to as a home as
1: I could get, which just broke my heart. Yeah, that's so sad. That's so sad to think about that. Yeah.
2: And then he he was also, you know, one of the things I found out also when I was in there is uh, I, I'm a lot worse at chess than I thought I was. Uh, actually, I was better at basketball, surprisingly. But uh, this guy, Chaos, was an amazing chess player. And he would, hit, you know, one of these guys that would just play at the snap of a you know, hat, a uh, finger. You know, he wasn't really thinking you'd make these rapid fire moves. Uh, And so it's like, wow, you know, and that's the thing, we tend to demonize people and reduce them as these two dimensional caricatures of good and evil. And what I found spending time with these men is that actually they're as complicated as I am. They have some of the same hopes and dreams um, for their family. And they certainly have had less privilege than I've had in many cases. Um, They've dealt with harsh conditions. It's not to excuse the things they might have done, but were they finding uh, the assistance that they needed in there? I didn't. I mean, the men I met with substance abuse issues or mental health problems—none of that was being addressed uh, in the incarceral facility. If anything, it seemed like those problems were were getting worse. And so then they're released back out into society, kind of unequipped to to handle uh, what they need to 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 be functional. And you know, I, I think that's something we need to really look look closely at. Um, I've looked at systems, you know, after I going through all of this, I ended up getting my PhD in uh, the University of Sydney and kind of looking at the roots of mass incarceration and looking at systems that work better than ours. And, you know, in Scandinavian countries like Norway has one of the world's lowest recidivism rates and part of it seems to be. Uh, they treat the men and women like human beings because there's no life sentences there. So they know that these people are going to go back in. And so, you know, I like to joke that some of these Norwegian prisons are a lot nicer than like Brooklyn apartments that I used to live in, you know, but uh, truly they have like a a little kitchen and they want people to uh, cook for themselves and you can go in and learn a trade and you can speak to a counselor. And as a result, uh, they, these people do heal and end up uh, contributing productively to society. And it seems like it is a much more humane and compassionate system, And which makes me question, well, why don't we have a system that works better?
1: Yeah. Did you come to any answers in your research that what might be contributing to this kind of toxic pattern?
2: Well, you know, I... I hate to say it, but I I, I really think that there is this way in which Uh, prison has been used almost as a form of social control, and I, I, I what I ended up doing is looking at the very roots of uh, the American prison system. And of course, our Puritan forebears, when they came over, they brought with them the bloody codes from England. Uh, so they believed in the sanguinary punishments, uh, whippings and brandings and executions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know the scarlet letter, where so you, you, it's not that you committed a crime, but you yourself are criminal, and you will always be, and it'll be written on your body this way. And actually it was the Quakers who were kind of uh, the liberal party in some ways of the time who thought jails, which had, uh, up until then had just been places where you would store someone uh, but before they were transferred to court or for their punishment or whatever, could actually be the place where through a couple of things, silence uh, and labor, men could be redeemed. And of course, you still see the threat of that from solitary confinement today to um, forced uh, prison workshops and privatized prison where men are paid substandard wages to produce goods for companies. Uh, But um, there always was uh, kind of the sense that those who were um, undesired, marginalized, different in some way, who threatened the Orthodoxy, uh, who threatened conformity, um, would be, uh, you know, like if you were a a witch in Salem, right? If you're a woman who didn't conform in terms of the gender stereotypes of the time, you were considered a threat. And so, you know, I think that, uh, and certainly in the late 19th century, prisons became this place where, okay, well, we can't enslave people anymore, but what we can do is put all of these laws on the book. Uh, like vagrancy laws and apprenticeship laws, where you know you had to get uh, in order to practice a trade, um, someone had to sign a certificate saying that you could. Uh, but it was usually a white tradesman who wouldn't want to do it. And then if you were caught track, being a cobbler or whatever, you could be arrested and levied a fine that you couldn't pay off, and so you would have to go to prison to kind of pay off your debt. Uh, And so there's always been this racial component. And like you said, it's when you look at the the numbers and Michelle Alexander's got this great book, The New Jim Crow. uh, And uh, I think, you know, she and she has all of these statistics. Like today, we have more African-Americans under in prison, probation and parole than there were slaves during the Civil War era. But the one that's really always struck with me is she said a black man born in 2001 uh, has a one in three chance of uh being arrested. Has that's what crazy. 30%. Yeah. Isn't that, that yeah, that's insane? wild? Yeah, I think she the Pew Research Center, these are all substantiated facts. And so it's like, holy crap, you know, and uh what what does that do to someone when you are kind of considered to be criminal or a threat by virtue of you know where you live or what you look like uh you know I, I just i wonder about the psychological toll that it must take on people as well and you know the other thing is while we've been having this exponential increase uh in incarceration um crime has remained steady there's been no real significant decrease at all uh and so, yeah, it's just, it's one of these things, I feel like it's a, a shadowy secret that should have us protesting in the streets and that I knew about theoretically, but then when I witnessed firsthand, just like blew my mind I was like, oh man, this is like part of the legacy of this great country founded on these principles of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, but of course these principles were written by men who owned slaves at the same time, uh, and this uh, these democratic ideals are at a different distance for us, um, depending on who we are, uh, which is I, I think a, a terrible thing. I, mean, I I really believe we want to work towards a more equitable society.
1: Absolutely right. We want to have everyone competing on the same playing field, if possible. But there's so much, so many head starts, so many handicaps, so much intergenerational either you know bonuses or detriments. I mean, I in my practice, I do a lot of work with men and talk a lot about masculinity and, and kind of how do you find a modern definition of that. And one thing that stood out to me, I think it might have been in in New Jim Crow or maybe in a similar book of she was talking about this idea where if all the men in a community are going to prison, you're having young boys that are raised without fathers. Yeah. And this kind of intergenerational thing where they don't have male role models. They don't, they're not able to express their masculinity health in healthy ways. So they're attracted to things like gangs or crime or places place where they can prove themselves and feel strong and feel tough, which I think in some ways, a lot of young men are, but they don't have the opportunity to do it in a way that is conducive to their life, right? They're doing it in a way that is going to get them in more trouble because they don't have options.
2: Absolutely. And there, you know, this is also a uh, part of a larger conversation about the kind of, toxic masculinity we all grow into where you know you I'm I'm a poet but we uh, certainly as a young man I was not encouraged to express my emotions you know it was, uh, even with my friends in high school the, the way we show affection to each other is like we talk smack about each other right they're the and so, I mean, I think that there is a way in which uh, we are not taught to be kind of um, emotionally intelligent young men in, in some ways. But, yeah, that interfaces with everything that you're talking about, for sure.
1: Yeah, that's a big topic. I mean, that's really what my whole practice is about. So we can we can dive into that on the other side of the break as well. Um, so we're going to move to our final commercial break. If you're listening, hang in and we'll catch you on the other side.
0: this course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's Mark, M-A-R-C, dash Are you ready to move to your next level? Listen for Empowering Women, Transforming Lives with host Rebecca Hall Greider. Each show will focus on a central topic with discussion, guests, and your questions being featured. Our show is perfect for women who feel a call in their heart to step out in a bigger, more powerful way in their life and just need some encouragement, inspiration, and practical steps to support them on their journey. Empowering Women, Transforming Lives can be heard live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the... Voice America Empowerment Channel, with a replay of the show Sunday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at Voice America TRN or twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN. are listening to from the ashes with mark azule to reach the show today please call 1-888-346-9141 that's 1-888-346-9141 or send an email to podcast at mark-azule.com now back to from the ashes
1: so Ravi, as you've been talking, I've just been sitting here like nodding, like,
0: yes, yes, yes. Say more about that.
1: That's awesome. I'm so happy you're bringing attention to this. And I can't help but you know wonder if our audience is feeling the same. So in our, in our final segment here, we try to talk directly to the audience. Is there any, I don't know, resources or, or tips or, or ways to think about, change your perspective, if they're really connecting with what you're saying on the show here?
2: Yeah. And uh, what a pleasure to have this conversation with you. And I would say, I mean, it really is my hope that, um, and I've been told the book is kind of compulsively readable. You know, I wish I hadn't gone through some of what I have gone through, but uh, I'm glad I was able to transform it into this story. Um, But that it, uh, my hope is that the book is not simply a kind of literary artifact, but that it is actually a tool that makes us want to get involved and, and to help Transform this paradigm that is not working in in a way, and you know, I I found I mean, I, I think I was like a lot of uh, you. Um, I I will like the occasional tweet that comes by or the Facebook post, and yet what I didn't realize is just just doing that in some ways makes you actually complicit in this system that is. And so we really do have to kind of get involved. And in the great thing. Uh, That I found, especially researching uh, organizations that are interested in criminal justice reform, that there are a lot of national and local ones. So, you know, from the Sentencing Project, the Vera Institute, uh, the Prison Policy Initiative, the Marshall Project, Uh, the Innocence Project, the Southern Law Poverty Center. These are all really big, large national ones, but you can also get involved on a local level. And so I have been doing um, some workshops uh, uh, for Harvest Kitchen, which is a Rhode Island-based organization that works with um, DCF youth and uh, kind of teaches them cooking skills. Um, There's another organization, and actually I'm going to be donating a, a percentage of the proceeds from correctional to them, Garden Time and they uh, bring uh, gardening skills and horticultural knowledge and food knowledge to incarcerated men and women. Uh, and I've also been you know, teaching writing workshops. I was teaching a writing workshop at the York Correctional Institute, uh, which is a women's prison in, in Niantic, Connecticut. Uh, actually, the writer Wally Lamb uh, worked with these women and I, they published a great book called uh, I'll Fly Away. Um, and so uh, what I found is the gratitude that uh, men and women who are locked up have that uh, for anyone um, spending any time, because they really feel like they are forgotten upon, and they are uh, uh, it, they need to be built back up. And so, getting engaged. I mean, you can write to. Your, I, I say you can write to your legislator, but it, you know that doesn't seem to do a whole heck of a lot. But luckily, there are these people who are really passionate. I almost think of them as this generation's freedom riders, in some way, because they're on the front lines. Um, kind of, uh, and I think the other thing I really believe in is bibliotherapy, and not just for those who are incarcerated, for all of us, that the ability to be able to write our story and to write into those places where we're ashamed, where we're traumatized, uh, is really very healthy and uh, powerful and transformative. And um, that's why these writing workshops have been so powerful, I think, because once people are able to start telling their own story to themselves, they're able to forgive themselves and forgive other people and kind of move forward. Um, So that, but I'm a writer. So that was a real, but I think no matter what you do, there's a way in which you're engaged, you can engage. I mean, uh, maybe you can fundraise, maybe you can um, devote your cooking or artistic skills. uh, But you know, look around your community, because there probably are people doing this kind of work who would love to have you involved, and it really makes a difference.
1: Yeah, this is a lot of fantastic resources that you just shared there. And what I'm hearing is a common thread of, you know, what to do about this. You know, I'm hearing engagement, I'm hearing education, I think, but I think above all else, I'm hearing community, right? Finding ways that people are gathering together around these topics and giving these people that are in these disenfranchised, you know, situations sense of belonging and a sense of importance would you agree with that or
2: absolutely yeah which is what is uh and you mentioned the the lure of gangs and other things i think it's because people don't belong uh and that's why they're looking for these kinds of outlets in some way and um the, uh, the amazing thing that I found, and I write about this in Correctional, you I would see some of these, uh, the hardest men that I've ever been around with scars and tattoos, and yet here they are braiding one another's hair mm-hmm. and cooking together, making mofongo, this kind of Puerto Rican soul, soul food, and sharing pictures and um, Uh, hair nutrition tips with each other and and creating almost this kind of alternative community in spite of all of the institutional pressure that existed to kind of uh, keep them dysregulated in some way and I I was really touched that I was briefly accepted in into this community and I I think in my conversations what I found is that once uh, many of these men are on probation or parole in the halfway house Community is really hard for them to come by. I mean, in fact, it seems again, you were saying about uh, investment and failure that a lot of times, you know, if you have a probation appointment, you have to get to twice a week at 10am, like what kind of job can you really hold down? Uh, You know, know, there are certain people that you can't see and certain places you can't go. And so I, I think And what I found is it really has made me a better teacher and more empathetic and more in touch with my own humanity to kind of, help these men and women in whatever way that I can, Uh, and I I think, you know, we throw around this phrase intentional inclusion, but I I don't think we often live up to it, and you know, this is in hiring practice, we talk about wanting people of different uh, genders and sexualities and ethnicities and different ages, and I think as part of that conversation, we also need to think about people who might have a, a, a criminal record. Uh, who are trying to make their way back into society? I mean, I there's a reentry organization in Connecticut uh, that I've worked a little bit with, and I talked to one of the the guys, Donnell, uh, who said, you know, I'm so grateful for all of the help, but you know, what you all are telling me is like the only thing I'm good for is flipping burgers or working retail. You know, before I came in, uh, you know, I was um, playing music and um, performing my work, and I wanted to go to to college, and now. Uh, the I've been reduced to to do these menial kinds of tasks. And um, I feel like uh, that's probably true. I mean, we're not really invested in helping people who've made a mistake. But if we think about it, we've all made a mistake in the past and we've all needed a helping hand. And so if we can kind of become more compassionate and allow for that to happen, I think the benefits for all of us collectively will be enormous.
1: Yeah, I, I love that idea. I love the idea of also... Yeah, adding criminal background as a I don't know say, diversity marker or something that can be celebrated and it can be integrated. I mean, my mind immediately goes to you know hiring a veteran, and it seems like it's it's kind of similar, right? These people have often been through horrible traumatic situations. They usually have some form of PTSD or trauma. You know, when I worked in the system, almost everyone I talked to had a sense of guilt and stress about what they did. You know, I mean, there were, I'm sure there were some that were proud of it, but those are kind of the psychopath, sociopathic individuals, right? And even then, if you look in their childhood, there's reason for why they might feel that way. Mm-hmm. But I think this idea of seeking out that level, that diversity marker as something that can actually benefit an organization or benefit community and not be, like you said, the scarlet letter. I mean, that's a fantastic metaphor where it really does – Imbue that shame of this is who you are forever, right? That's so toxic. I mean, it's awful for people.
2: And I I feel like shame is such a paralyzing uh, kind of feeling. Of course, it's our inheritance, I think, from our puritanical uh, forebears in some way. And yet, I think um, shaming someone, and I feel like we live in this moment of outrage where we kind of want to cast people out and... um, Ultimately, I think extending a hand and building a bridge is always more effective than ostracizing someone or Mm -hmm. casting them, uh, as they used to say, beyond the pale. Right. And which is a, I, I, you know, I, I'm a, li- a word nerd and a, a linguist. And so I talk about this phrase in the book, but it used to be that uh, the area of land outside of civilization was called the pale. And literally to if you were a little eccentric or bizarre, you were considered beyond the pale. Uh, and I think we need to have room for all kinds of um, uh, different perspectives, but also to understand that someone for whatever might have gone through, and maybe there are some violent offenders who need to be incarcerated, but there are so many nonviolent offenders um, who I I, I think have trouble then reintegrating into society when they come out, Um, whatever assistance that we can uh, provide, I think is, is really, uh, would be a great thing.
1: Yeah. I I think it's fantastic. So as we're moving towards the end here, what are you up to now? Like what's going on in, in Dr. Ravi's life?
2: Oh, well, you know, I mean, uh, uh, this whole episode that I detail, and there, you know, correctional, there are a number of different strands. There's also this kind of immigrant story of my parents uh, coming from South Asia and me growing up as a bicultural Indian American in Northern Virginia and me growing, uh, living through 9 11. And, you know, you might have mentioned I share the name with a very famous Indian musician. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, you know, this book took about seven years in writing. And when I, uh, I, Uh, after going through all of these experiences ended up leaving my position at the university I left my marriage I actually um, took this fellowship at the University of Sydney because it felt like Australia was as far away as I could get but you know the old buckaroo bonsai uh, quote uh, uh, no matter where you go there you are right so you can't really get away but I what the distance allowed me was to to shape this book Uh, And um, now that I've moved back to New England, I'm teaching creative writing at Tufts University. Uh, I'm the chairman of the Asia Pacific Writers and Translators and Organization, but also just doing a lot of work. And um, one of the really cool things I've done since uh, coming back is I joined, it a, joined a theatrical group called And Still We Rise, a Boston-based group composed of people who have been affected by the uh, incarceration system in some way. And so not just people who've spent some time, but there's one woman in the troupe, Lois, who has four sons and three grandsons who have all been arrested and so a lot of her stories are about being on the other end of the phone and putting money on the books and trying to talk to lawyers. Uh, And, uh, you know, I I never thought I was writing material, but they actually turned me into an actor, so I kind of had my acting debut uh, as part of this uh, group last year, and they did another show this year and so. has been really uh pretty wonderful too and you know i live with my partner we have two dogs uh and are 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 living in providence and i you know i'm still was a formerly um tenured full professor and i've still found it difficult to uh be employed as an adjunct and uh the difficulties i'm going through are mirrored and reflected by so many others which is why i i really want to advocate on on behalf of that but yeah i'm i'm in a good place after uh, having definitely been in a really bad one before.
1: That's really good to hear. It's, it's, it's relieving to hear that, you know, your, your life is back on track and I'm, yeah, truly so sorry to hear that that discrimination is still happening, right? Mm-hmm. That they're not taking into account your past accomplishments and, and who you are and, and what you've learned, but still finding difficulty with those professor jobs. That's yeah, that's, that's a shame. And I really like that you're on here sharing the story, sharing the message, getting this book out there so that people can, hear from the inside what it's actually like, right not falling in line with stereotypes from from either end of the aisle, but really talking to people that have been in the system and have been engaged with it.
2: Yeah and I, you know I think maybe part of what is unique about my story is I'm someone who's both benefited from enormous privilege. Uh, you know my father was a mechanical engineer and uh, uh, I went to some of the best schools. And yet I'm also someone who has been discriminated against on the basis of his ethnicity and his skin color. And so I've kind of had both of these experiences of America. And I think when I was telling this story, I was really trying to be very even handed and talk about because, you know, I was only in there for 90 days. Uh, some of the men that I met were would be or in there for years and years. And so I am by no means an expert. This was just Uh, my experience during this time and how I'm kind of using it to transform my life. But uh, yeah, I I know that there are a lot of other stories that need to be told as well.
1: Absolutely. So in our last moments here, can you let people know where they can find you, um, where they can get the book, any kind of social media, any website? Where are you at?
2: Absolutely. Well, Correctional uh, is out, published by University of Wisconsin Press, and you can get it on Amazon, and uh, you can get it on ebook. And I'm on the socials at Emperpler, Empurpler, Uh, And uh, you can check me out at poetravishankar.com. I'm always happy to have these kinds of discussions. And if I can ever be of assistance or provide any kind of resources I'm always happy to do so. So definitely reach out anytime. And I hope you read the book. And if you do, I'd love to hear what you think.
1: That's great. That's an open invitation. So thank you so much for joining us on another episode of From the Ashes, and we'll see you next week.
0: Thank you for joining host Mark Azoulay on From the Ashes. Be sure to tune in again live next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Meet Triumph and Defeat and treat those two imposters the same.